Hi, it's Zoe, and this is the Zoe Rath Leadership Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thank you. You're amazing. All of you are amazing. I'm so grateful to share this time with you and to bring you some amazing authors and speakers and leaders to help us lead better. This show is all about exploring perspectives and points of view and becoming better leaders as a result. Uh, what we're going to be talking about today is all about disruption. It's like, it's kind of like the big buzzword, right? So how do we create disruption? How do we run disruption businesses? And how do we become the Uber of the next thing? And really what we're going to talk about today is we've got it all around backwards. We need to not talk about disruption necessarily, but to obsess about our customers instead as a starting point, because that is what builds meaningful impact. Otherwise, we're just chasing our tails and trying to find the magic silver bullet to create an exponential impact. So the magic bullet is instead is obsessing about our customers. And here to showcase it all is the author of this fantastic book, which I totally loved and have highlighted and scribbled over and will be studying more, is called The Disruption Mindset, Why Some Organizations Transform While Others Fail. Charlene Lee is the author. She This is her, her sixth book. <laughs> so no novice here. It's her sixth book. She is an author, a researcher, and a speaker. She's the founder of and senior fellow at Altimeter, a profit company. She is a New York Times bestseller with her first one of her first books, Open Leadership, and co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Groundswell. She's been named as one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company. She's an expert on digital transformation and disruptive growth strategies, and I'm sure you're going to absolutely love this interview, as I love the book and I loved speaking with her. Get ready for a fabulous listen. Hurrah! I am so thrilled to have Charlene, you amazing person, amazing writer, um, amazing, brilliant thinker on the podcast today. I loved your book, so please welcome, please feel welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And you're all the way in San Francisco, where I have a family, actually. So living on the other side of the pond, I'm dialing in from Australia. Uh, what is the weather like in San Francisco right now? Uh, it's kind of cloudy, sunny, freezing cold, perspective-wise in San Francisco. Apologies to people in cold climates. But it's kind of the same all year round here in San Francisco. Well, it's stinking hot here in Australia and half the country is on fire. So it's oh, I'm so sorry. We know what that experience is like. It's, it's I know. Horrible. Sorry. Yeah. About that. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Anyway, that's the context in which we find ourselves. You're in the freezing cold. I'm in the raging hot summer. And we have this beautiful book between us, which is fantastic. This is your fifth book. Is that right? Technically my sixth. Oh my God, Father. <laughs> no, just keep pumping them out. So, <laughs> Do you find the, the, well, I'm an author too, and I'm curious about this. Um, do you find the process gets easier or not? It's never easy. Again, the book writing process, as you know, is a wonderful, terrifying, horrible, exciting experience. It's all of the above. Um, I love the ideas. I love telling the stories, but the actual act of sitting down and forcing the words out of my head, it's just brutally hard. The whole process is just hard. And the thing that keeps me going is I'm excited about the ideas. But I mean, there are days when I'm like, this is not coming out of me. <laughs> so it's just uh, hard to get to the keyboard and to write. I hear you. I'm in the middle of writing my fourth book and I'm in, I'm in the middle of major angst. <laughs> so it is. I love that you say that it was terrifying. Like, I mean, you're a very successful author with some amazing books that have got huge acclaim and you still find it terrifying. 
it's terrifying even to write a tweet and to po- write a blog post because if you're really pushing the edges, then it is terrifying because you're not quite sure how it's going to be received. And that's where the magic happens is when you move out of that comfort zone. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just, my palms are sweating just even thinking about what that process looks like and feels like. It never oh gets easier. Oh, I love that you put that out there because your the book is The Disruption Mindset. <laughs> You know, and, and if you're going to disrupt, that is a terrifying process. It's a pretty scary, it's a pretty scary experience to throw, as you mentioned in the book about burning the boats and throwing all sheets to the wind and being all in is it's not for the faint hearted. That's for sure. No. And, and the thing is, is that for decades now, we've been told, you know, go out, disrupt or die and you can do it and it'll be great. And the reality is the honest truth is that it's terrifying. And it's hard and it's soul-sucking in some ways. And yet at the same time, so rewarding because if you're doing it for the right reasons and those reasons come true, it is, you feel like the skies have parted and it's actually working and there's no greater joy to see that impact happen. So tell me about that. What are the right reasons for disruption? The right reasons for disruption are to have that impact, that exponential impact, that growth, whatever it is, the way you measure it. And I like to say is thinking about the impact you're going to have on your customers, whoever they are. If you're, um, you know, you're trying to create a product or a service to make people's lives better. If you're trying to create a community and a church or a society, if you're trying to educate um, a group of people about a new idea or skills or capabilities, if you could do that better, faster, with greater impact, would you? Could you? And the reality is, is that oftentimes we know how we could do more of that, but we pull ourselves back from doing that because it's going to be really hard to make that impact happen. We're probably going to fail and fall flat on our faces at times. And there's a part of us that says, never, never do that. Never take those risks. You have to get it perfect. I was working with a healthcare system recently, and one of the tenets of being the health profession is to do no harm. You have to be perfect. You have to go out there and never cause any harm. And the reality is we can strive for that. And it's really difficult to always get it perfect. So perfect is not necessarily the objective here. The objective is to create no harm, to do no harm. And that requires being excellent. And that's different from being perfect. Well, that's a good distinction. Yeah, I think anybody who strives for perfect is basically going to be shooting themselves in the foot with that because <laughs> there is no sense there is no perfect state of anything um so being excellent i think is a is a good tenet this whole idea of growth that you're you're speaking to because you you reframe growth in the book it's not just about bigger and more it's about as you say better and impact and i like this as a notion because i think in our western culture in particular growth is sort of put up there as the uh, be all and end all of all business purpose and I think it skewed a lot of our actions. So I like the way that you've reframed it to be really more about impact. Was that something that was obvious to you or did that come out in the research that you did? Um, I've always believed that um, growth, one-sided growth was never health- healthy. And so I think about growth with a small G, which is traditional revenues, profits, shareholder value, things like that. And the big G, which is about societal impact, about personal growth, the big G that is much harder to measure in some ways, but so much more impactful and long lasting. 
we see it more and more now in the U.S. We have the Business Roundtable came out and said the purpose of a corporation is not to generate profits for its shareholders, but it's also to take care of the environment, to improve the prospects of society, to create a living wage for employees. So it's it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. Because if you only maximize for profits, you can't sustain that long term. These other things need to be invested in for the well-being of all factors within the ecosystem. Do you think that's the leading edge in business in the U.S., or do you think that's more pervasive and prevalent? I'm curious about that because we get filtered view of what's happening in the U.S. over here. Yeah, the U.S. is very much biased towards, again, that uh, shareholder value aspect of things. But I think more recently, we've been moving in the opposite direction. The fact that over 200 CEOs signed up for their business roundtable tenants says that there's, I think, a fundamental shift. And, and there's also a realization that you cannot maintain shareholder value for the future unless you are investing in these other things, which is why whenever these CEOs get in front of their shareholders and say, yeah, we donated back to philanthropy. We did all these things. We took things away from profits because we think it will add to the long-term value of not just the company, but of our society. And we have to have a strong, healthy society for this company to exist in. Well, that's like a good news story, to be honest. You know, I mean, despite all the things that are kind of wacky, this thinking that has developed over the past 10 years, I think is one of the most wonderful things that has happened in business and that we've actually grown a conscious. We call it conscious capitalism and, and this idea that you're much more aware of what capital does. It's not this cold-hearted Karl Marx um, idea that looks at people as cogs and resources. It says, we're going to look at them as people. We're going to treat our society as something that needs to be invested in, our world as something that needs to be invested in. Oh, that's very uplifting. Thank you. I like the big G and the business roundtable principles and conscious capitalism as an ethic. And I think it's wonderful that we can start to seed this around the world in terms of what businesses should be on the planet for. And I like hearing this alternative reality story, which is much more inspiring than some of the other stories I've been hearing. I'm curious, though, in writing this book, because whenever we go on a journey of writing a book, there's a lot of research and reflection that goes with that. What was the most surprising thing that you discovered in your research and writing? Um, it, it would be that these disruptive organizations are incredibly not disruptive in the way they run themselves. They were incredibly well run. They're very ordered. They have a lot of structure. There's really good process. And you think that governance and structure and process are the things that kill disruption and innovation and creativity in these organizations, they are accelerating it. And that's because they have good governance, good structure, good process that allows people to know how work is going to get done. You don't have to worry about it. You don't spend any of your energy thinking about how work gets done. And you can focus on the really big, hairy, audacious ideas that are out there. So when you can spend 100% of your efforts on the actual disruptive work than having to spend any of that on trying to figure out where everyone else is sitting. Like, how do I get a decision made? And how do I break through roadblocks? If, if you don't have to spend any energy on that, then it's, you can be really disruptive. Do you think those structures were in place before they became disruptive or it was all kind of a synergistic thing that happened at the same time? They synergistically happened. They realized that, hey, this is, uh, we don't know how to do this. And so they actually sat down and goes, let's put a process in place so that we can focus on the work to be done, not how to do the work. And the, the disruptive organizations say, 
everything has to be geared towards the customer. Everything has to get out of the way for us to serve those customers. And if ourselves, our processes, our structure, our governance is getting in the way, we're going to fix that because we want nothing to stand in the way between us and meeting our future customer needs. It's like relentlessly focused on that. That's and, really and I, cool. I think it's really, I think it's really, really smart because unless you have a good appreciation for really strong governance, I, I think like the, the dirty words that are out there are process governance and um, structure because people go running away when you start talking about those things. They think they're nasty. And people who are disruptive go running to it because they understand you have to have those things in place if you're going to be aligned, if you're going to be pulling in the same direction. Because if you don't, then you're just spending a lot of time spinning wheels trying to figure out how to work with each other. That's a really interesting observation because I think you're right. Like the, our view of disruptive organizations is that they're full of creatives and it's all dynamic and it's fluid and nothing is sort of embedded down. It's fascinating that you found the opposite, that the structures actually create the freedom. The worst thing for creativity is a blank page, <laughs> a blank canvas with no starting point, no constraints, no structures, no idea what you're aiming for, no story to tell. When you have constraints, that's where creativity happens because your constraint now is no longer a structural organization. Your constraint is knowing who your customer is and what their needs are. When you have a really clear idea of that, then the structure is there to support you. I mean, have you ever tried to jump off of sand when you're on a beach? Can you jump really high? Can you push off and run really fast? You can't because the ground is constantly shifting beneath you. But if you are running on a hard surface, you can jump really high, you can push off really hard. And that's what structure and organization and process and governance does. It gives you that firm foundation so you can jump really high. Oh, that's wonderful. Great analogy. One of your key tenets is that we've been doing disruption wrong. And, and I like this one too, because we, we think there's big lexicon the last few years about, oh, everybody wants to be the Uber of something or other. And they put Uber up as the quintessential picture of disruption, came up with a brand new spanking idea that upended a whole industry. And that gave rise to exponential growth and has taken over the whole um, personal transport system. Now you go, well, no, it's not about getting the disruptive idea uh, that creates the growth. It's the reverse. So tell me about that. Like, how did you fall? Did you, is that like a hypothesis or was that an observation or is Tell me how you came to that idea and that conclusion. Well, I've been a technology analyst now for 20 years. And the one thing I can tell you is that it's never about the technology. Awesome. You know, people come to me and say, like, what's the disruptive technology or disruptive innovation that we have to put in place so that we can grow, like grow really fast? I'm like, you're asking the wrong question. Mm. Your ability to grow is probably already in-house. You're fully capable of doing that growth. But you're just holding yourself back because the idea of actually growing twice as much as you planned on is really hard. It's really disruptive. So you won't do it. As an exercise, I go around and, and people are like, well, you, know, you got to do this disruption thing. I go, look, let's just take away all the constraints. If you were to grow 2x next year, if you were planning on growing 10%, we're going to go 20% next year. What would you do differently? In almost every single situation, they go, I know exactly what I would do. I would do A, B, C, and make sure that D, E, F happen and everything. I said, so why aren't you doing it? <laughs> if you know exactly what you have to do. 
They go, well, that'd be really hard. Nobody would ever accept it. It would be highly disruptive. And I go, wait a minute, you're the CEO. You know, (laughs) you run this place. If you think this is what could really drive the growth, what's holding you back? And it's the idea that this is going to be hard. It's going to be disruptive. I mean, I hit my 200%. Maybe I only go 150%. And I I point out the obvious at that point. Is it 150% better than 100%? Last time I checked, it was. So why not aim for the 200%, 150%? Because that's not the way we think. We think we have to hit our goal or else we fail. So we're never going to push ourselves out there, push ourselves into that comfort zone, into a space of disruption and be comfortable with it. It's not the way we were trained, not the way we're thinking, not the way we're rewarded. So that you're talking about exponential thinking, and that's quite different to st- meeting goals or even stretch goals. And so the mechanism to get to that uh, exponential thinking is to put in big numbers. And I think that that your tenant around growth, it's not just like, you know, a methodical incremental thing. It's like, right, if you're going to 2x it, 10x it, what does that mean? And people's brains I think go. It's a, yeah, I think it's a really good thought exercise, right? I'm not saying you should actually put a plan in, like just automatically just double your numbers and like go for it, like good luck. But it's a really interesting exercise to say, if you could go twice as much, three times as much in the next year, over X time period, what would you do differently? Mm. And you have to ask yourself, why aren't you doing that? What's holding you back from that? And and the, the context I keep putting it back into is you've got a customer here that really needs your help that could really benefit from your product and service. So what can you do? What are you doing everything possible to help them to meet their needs, to create that change? Everything you could to the point where you feel like it's getting on thin ice. You may be having to jeopardize everything, do a huge pivot because that's what's going to take. But the only way you get to that point is by focusing on something other than yourself, you've got to focus on this future customer. Make those decisions, those sacrifices, those investments today to be able to chase after them tomorrow. My goodness, your passion makes me want to weep with excitement. (laughs) It's like, are you doing everything you can to help your customer? Like, oh my God, I don't know if I am. (laughs) Uh, My brain just got disrupted itself. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I was saying to my, I had this saying with my kids, you know, they finish a homework or something and they would say, so what do you think, mom? I've worked on this for like, you know, 30 minutes. And I go, have you done the best that you can? And they kind of put their head down and wept and like, of course I could do more. And, but then I go, but have, that's not my question. Can you do more? Have you done the best that you can? Have you done your best work? And any incremental more work is not going to make a difference. Then you're done. Right. Have you really pushed yourself to that edge? And you would know where that is. And having an honest conversation with yourself and say, have you pushed yourself, your capabilities, the skills, the things that you bring to the table on behalf of your customers to the very end of that? Have you left nothing, you have nothing left in your gas tank to do everything for them? Because they deserve that. They're expecting that. And if you don't, there's another competitor out there who will. So you talk a lot about your future customer. And this is the part of the book that I wrestled with the most. And I'm hoping that you can help help with this one because it's sort of the juggernaut to the disruptive mindset and disruptive process that you outline in the book is that you need to obsess around the customer. I mean, that's clear in your conversation so far about obsessing about the customer. The future customer isn't necessarily a different person. It might be the same person. 
Uh, so I'm just translating, I think, about what you're saying in the book is the future customers, you're anticipating their future challenges, their future needs. Is that what you meant by the future customer? That's correct. Yes. It could be the same customers today, but they have different needs. Yeah. I can guarantee you they probably have different needs. It may just be incrementally or it could be completely different. But how are needs going to evolve over the next couple of years? And when I go into organizations, I ask them to give me their strategic plan. And they usually hand me their 12-month budget. Mm. I go, this is not a plan. This is a 12-month budget that says, I'm going to do this for the remaining part of my calendar year. So how do you plan for the future if you do that? If your focus is just what happens within eyesight of, of, of a shooting distance of, of this a couple months, how do you plan and make investments for the future unless you know who you're trying to aim for? Any sort of strategic plans that you have are founded on air unless you know who you're building it for. If you're trying to meet the needs of your customer today, well, that's great, except that by the time you figure out how to do that six or 12, 18 months from now, your customer is further out from where you were before. And they're just sitting out there waiting for you to catch up to them. You just met their needs from where they were at this period of time when you started that effort. So this, this was the thing that was really surprising to me. I kept coming back to what was the secret? What was the reason why disruptive organizations are able to disrupt themselves over and over and over again? What is that secret? And like people like Amazon say, we'll focus on the customers, customers first or customer success and everything. But it's which customer? And when you look at it, their whole process is about defining who that future customer is, what the product is going to look like. They work backwards from the future to today. That's the tricky part, right? It's a simple That's idea. a simple yes. idea, but it's the tricky part because you're like, what you're talking about is using a lot of the futurist skills. So um, um, what's not in the book is some of that. Like you, you give us the empathy map, which is to dive into the deep mindset and needs of a customer. The picking the future needs part is the futurist kind of work. Um, so in my limited understanding of that, there's environmental scanning that you can do in terms of looking at trends and then developing scenarios. Do you have other tips and techniques to help people get comfortable or uh, get an understanding of the future? Yeah, the biggest problem with developing a future is that we're, it's unknown and we're not comfortable making guesses. And we also don't want to make bets unless we have 100% data, we're 100% sure that this is where the future is going to go and how it's there, I'm not going to make any bets. Here's the thing, is almost everybody has an idea of who that future customer is and what their future needs are. I can go into any strategic room, the people are smart, they understand their customers and they understand the environment and how it's going to change. They're just not agreed, they're not aligned. So they're working in like eight different directions of what that future looks like. Figure it out, <laughs> like, agree, do the research and collect what I call the minimally viable data to make your first step heading in that direction. And then you'll find out pretty quickly, you set up the parameters of the test to say, how can we quickly figure out whether we're heading in the right direction or the wrong direction? And then just keep doing that again and again and again, every single time it's the first step and you're testing. This doesn't require like huge skills and like future mind map reading, whatever it is. This is about knowing who your customers are and anticipating where they're going to go and making some small bits in the beginning and developing your gut and your skills. I, um, I mentioned it briefly, but Wayne Gretzky has this great quote, I skate to where the puck is going to be. And the story that got caught was as a child, he would sit there 
and trace where the puck was going to be on a pad of paper in his lap, was watching TV. So this was not a skill that he just happened to have that he was born with. He developed this skill and he developed this vision to anticipate where the puck was going to be. And that's what organizations need to do. We don't feel confident knowing where the future customer is because we've never done it before. But if you do this constantly, you do this all the time, you will get better at it. It'll be more comfortable. You'll get faster at aligning on, and deciding on one model, a couple models to go and test and run and get closer to who that future customer is. So on a very granular, basic level, just I want to make this very pragmatic for, for me and for uh, those listening. So it would be things like read the industry magazines of your, of your customers. It would be like interview your current customers and find out what their, what their challenges are from their perspective. It would be going to visit them on site and seeing what's going on in their offices. That kind of stuff, is that what you're talking about? Those are all the great things that you do to understand who your customers are. The trick is to have a hypothesis of who your future customer is. And I'll give you a hint. They're usually not your best customers. Okay. Right? They're usually the ones who are complaining the most. They're the ones who are on the fringes saying, why can't you do this for me? And you want to pay special attention because they may or may not be your future customer. They may be indicating an emerging need that you don't know about. Because your best customers, you're serving them really well already. You don't have to worry about them, right? You're going to continue to serve them really well. You have to do that as table stakes. But where are the customers that you're not serving well? Are those opportunities or are they really these, these holes that you could drop into and, and try to dig around in there for a long time without realizing you're digging the wrong hole? Mm. There's no oil there. There's no water there. So where do you dig? Where do you go look for these future customers? the chances are they're probably in your customer database already. They're in your customer set. You just don't know that you're, they're your future customers yet. Yeah, right. So you look for the people who are whinging the most. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways. I, and I, basically, the, the, the beauty, the reason why this is possible now and it wasn't possible five or 10 years ago is that um, organizations, especially large organizations, now have the communication tools inside the organization to quickly understand, oh, this customer has a potential need that we can meet. We're not meeting it today. They may represent. So somebody at the front lines in customer service or in sales or marketing can say, I think I have a future customer here. Gather up everybody. Come and look. Is that a future customer? Can we, are they interesting? Should we try to serve them? Can we serve them well? Do they represent a, a bigger market, addressable market that we've never tapped into? Let's dig deeper. Let's dig deeper. Let's dig deeper. What's really going on here? But unless you look for them and develop them and develop the skills of the entire organization to identify and sense and look for them and then treat them like gold when you find them, it's like, let's go look and see more. Are there more people out there? We can do that now because we have all these technologies to be able to learn quickly in, in real time who our customers are if we know to ask for it. Tell me a little, like, what, give me a couple of examples of that, like the technology that allows us to do that. Are you talking about databases and intranets and? Um... Yeah, all the communication tools. Again, the fact that somebody can, if, if you're looking for a certain type of behavior, like somebody's asking for a particular product or skill, and it certainly shows up on a blip. In the past, you would just never see it. It would just be noise. But now, because of AI and machine learning and all these other tools, that little blip turns from noise to signal. It says, we're going to be looking for the scan in the environment constantly. Wait, here's one here. 
great, there's another one here. We're now seeing more of this happening. We can actually see that this is important, but you have to look for it. You can't depend on machine learning to look for something that you haven't told it to look for. Yeah, you got to program it. Cool. Well, you talk about four different types of disruptive leaders, and I thought that was a really fascinating piece of work that you did here. And I'm curious to think, like, because some of them have a bigger disruptive effect than others, are they all okay as in terms of types of leaders or are there ones that are better to aim for? And can you develop into the most ideal disruptive leader? Yeah, the four archetypes are the realist optimists. And these people are just great because they have one factor, which is the openness to change mindset. They see change as a great opportunity. And they also have the leadership behaviors that empower and inspire people to create that change so they can create movements. Those two things together create just fantastic disruptive leaders. Then you have some people who are what I call steadfast managers versus being realist optimists. And the difference is they're really good leaders in their behaviors, but they don't have such a strong orientation towards changes like the best thing ever. <laughs> they actually say, you know, change is really scary for me. So they like things being the same. They, they kind of thrive in that. Um, agent provocateurs are just the opposite of steadfast managers. They love change, but they can't actually get change done very effectively. So these are the people who wave their hands on the stage, say, disrupt or die, inspire people, and then walk off the stage and nothing's changed. Pairing up the agent provocateurs and the steadfast managers is a really powerful thing because they play to each other's strengths. But my favorite group are the worried skeptics. Really? They're not very change-oriented. And their leadership capability tends to be closer in. And these people, oftentimes, you could see them as the least disruptive people in your organization. They typically have the lowest disruption scores. But I think they're still really important because you can only go as fast as your slowest worried skeptic. And the key here is to make sure they buy into your future customer models. Do they buy into your strategy of disruption? Do they believe that these customers are worth fighting for? Because if they do, then they will move. It won't be the most natural thing to do. Their instinct will be to say, but if we do that, here are all the things that can go wrong. And that is incredibly helpful because you need somebody who can develop all those contingency plans, who can develop all the scenarios. So that when you take your first step and it doesn't work, you can go back and take the second step and the third and the fourth option. And the worry skeptics are really good at this because they naturally think about all the things that go wrong. Yeah. They're skeptics about things. So you're not, the, the idea here with the four archetypes is you're not trying to morph them all into the realist optimist. They're, they all have something of value and they all have something that you can amplify and bring to the table. Right. And the thing here is that the way that the assessment is done is actually relative to the general population. So it's always going to be relative to everybody else. In every organization, there are going to be realist optimists. There are going to be worried skeptics. And you could be incredibly disruptive. I like to say you could be an eight on a scale of one to 10, like highly disruptive. But if everybody else is a nine or a 10, you're the laggard, <laughs> right? Yeah. But similarly, you could be a three. But if everybody else in the organization is like a one or a two, you are highly disruptive. So this is about becoming a 10. It's not about becoming a 10. It's about being able to see where you are relatively 
and then to focus on the key component for buy-in, which I think is a real gift here, um, because a lot of leaders struggle with this. You know, how do I get people to buy into what we're doing, whether it's disruptive or not? And your key, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if you have future customers that you believe are worth fighting for, then hell, we'll make the changes. Yeah, it's an incredibly aligning idea. And it's not only aligning, but you say that we are accountable to our customers. They're going to hold us accountable. The ultimate accountability, NPS scores, lifetime value, your customer satisfaction scores, it's the best form of accountability because it's outside of the organizational structure and all the wackiness that happens there because you're focusing on the right thing then. You're focusing on the thing that's going to determine whether they're going to be successful or not, your customers. Mm. It's such a simple idea. It's kind of dumbfounding (laughs) that not everybody picks this up and runs with it. Yeah, I, I go and ask people, I begin a lot of my work in speaking in workshops is, so who here has a good idea who the future customer is? A few hands kind of tentatively go up, right? And it's kind of shocking to me because we think about, we have a strategy, we think we have an idea of how we're going to head, but we don't really know why we're heading in that direction for what needs we're going to have in a concrete way. And then I ask those people whose hands are up and I go, that's great that you have a good idea of who your customer is. Is everybody else in the organization aligned around that model of the future customer and all the hands go down? And so this is the, the biggest problem for disruptive um, ideas is that we know we want to grow. We have good ideas of how we could do that. We have vague ideas of who the customer is, but we are not aligned. Mm. A strategy is only as good as everybody's marching in the same direction, pulling for the same goal. Mm. And if you're not doing that, then everything's going to be dispersed and it's going to be really hard. It's going to feel like you're dragging that ship across dry land. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds just painful. (laughs) One of my favorite parts of your book too is uh, where you talk about the manifesto and as another way to galvanize getting people on board and buy in. Uh, Have you got some good examples of a great manifesto that people can have a look at? Um, I think the Apple one. Um, is great. I don't have the words in front of me, but it's the um, Think Different Mm -hmm. um, manifesto. You were born to be thinking different. And so let's revel in the fact that we're we're heretics and we're mavericks, and that's what makes the world great. So we believe in helping people think and live and do different things and be inspirational about that. Uh, So I just think those kinds of words are incredibly powerful because it says we're putting a stake in the ground for what we stand for. And the more that you can put your future customer into this, like we understand you, future customer. We understand what your problems are and we know what the challenges are and we're here to make that go away. We're here to address those issues and to help you be successful because we believe in your success. I think T-Mobile, when they did the uncarrier strategy was great because they said, we believe that customers should be number one, that you shouldn't have to, be tied in for two years for a contract that we should say, put our contracts in plain language that if you're not happy, we should do everything possible to fix it. And people are like, no carriers ever talked like this before. Mm. Usually the carrier says, okay, here's on the line and you know, you're stuck with us, take it or leave it and mm. feel horrible. And T-Mobile said, no, no, no. We're going to talk to you in a totally different way. You're going to walk into the store. We're going to greet you in a different way. We're going to pick up the phone and address you like a real person and make sure that we understand who you are and why you're here, how you got to this place and how we can help you get to the place where you want to be. So that's completely different. Yeah. 
it's a powerful piece of communication that most organizations don't bother to create. And um, I really like it. And I'm going to seek out different manifestos and see if we can showcase them. Yeah, I think um, I think the author Gretchen Rubin, who writes about happiness, is really into manifestos. I didn't get it into the book in time, but she has like a happiness manifesto. These are the things that she believes. Like, what are the things that are going to make you happy? Is that available um, on her site? Yes, it is. You can go to GretchenRubin.com and you can see her manifestos there. And she's got like five or six of them. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes for folks too around that. That's awesome. Yeah, I just wrote a manifesto for a new community of disruptors. Because uh, I figured I should what? probably put. Tell me about yeah. that. You got a community of disruptors. Where, what's what's going on there? Tell me about that. Where is that? Yeah, um, as one of the things I decided, it's in the very back of the book. I, I write about how I'm creating a community called Quantum Networks, and you can see more about it quantum-networks with an s dot com. And the idea is that disruption is a really lonely job. You oftentimes feel like you're pushing against windmills, and that no one else can see this opportunity. And it's exhausting, but you so believe in it. So you're going to keep pushing it. And it can be really lonely and you don't know the best practices, what to do. You don't know who the other disruptors are in the organization or outside of the organization. It is not a role that people can join a group for. So I figured, you know, like CMOs or CIOs or digital marketing, there are groups for people with best practices around each of these practice areas. But there isn't one for disruption. So I figured, hey, I see a need. I see a future customer here. I should create something for them. So I created Quantum Networks so that disruptive leaders can come together and learn how to be better disruptive leaders, support each other and learn how to do this. Oh, that's fantastic. And one of the key attributes or or skills is to build a flex culture, a culture in an organization that can handle and manage disruption. How have you seen that work because uh, like you talk about how to hardwire a flex culture into your organization and any culture change conversations I've had or organizations I've looked at or books that I've read figure that this is hard. Is it a hard thing or an easy thing to do? It's a hard thing to do, but I think it's absolutely something you can do. People think that changing culture is nearly impossible. It's like turning the battleship. But I think in many ways that's because we're thinking about just changing the culture, getting rid of stuff that we don't do well, like all the toxic things. But we don't say, what are the things we want to do well? So culture is simply the beliefs that we have and the behaviors. You change your beliefs, you change your behaviors. You change your behaviors, you change your beliefs. The two work together. And if you don't like something in your organization, it's probably because the belief in the behavior is out of whack. And you don't want to believe those things. You don't want to do those things anymore. So I, I do an exercise uh, with clients where we take post-it notes and we sit around with the team and they go, what are the things you say to each other? What are the things that are holding you back? And it, it can't be things like we don't have enough capital, but it could be the fact that because we don't have enough capital, we can't be innovative. And I go, is that really true? Is that a belief that you really hold on to? You believe that's true? And then you realize, no, why did we say that to ourselves? Has anybody ever said that? Or we don't have permission. Like, who has said you don't have permission? And I, I was literally in a gathering of room of 300 people. And they were like, we can't do these things, whatever. I'm like, who else is not in this room <laughs> who is saying this to you? Like, you guys, you 300 senior leaders of this organization, get to call the shots of what you will believe and what, how you will behave. That culture change starts right here, right now. What are the things you're going to say to each other? 
So write them on a piece of paper, write them on a post-it note, put them in the middle, agree that these are things we're not going to say to each other anymore. And then take some more post-it notes and say, how are we going to replace that belief with new ones that say something completely different? So if in the past was, we don't have enough money, we don't have the budget to be innovative. The new belief is, you don't need money to be innovative. It starts here, it starts in your head and starts in your heart. If we believe that we can be innovative, we don't need permission, we don't need budget. We can do that because our customers demand it. In the work that you do, what do you love most about it? I call it the aha moment. Um, That's the moment when I'm talking to somebody and this look of understanding, of clarity passes through the face and through the body. And they're like, oh, I get it now. I get it. And there's there's something so rewarding in that because I feel like this sense of like relief, happiness, the sense that, oh yeah, I can actually do something about this that looked so confusing before. So it gives people a sense of power, of agency, of confidence that they can walk away saying like, okay, I got it. I got it. So that is the most rewarding thing for me is that if my words have an impact to inspire people to take that first step, that is absolutely what I live for. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, one last question. Now you're an author, so most authors I know read prolifically. Um, I'm guessing that you do too. What is your latest favorite leadership read? Oh, I wish I read more. (laughs) Um, I'll tell you, I've I've been reading uh, this book. I actually have it here next to me. The Leadership Challenge. It's an oldie but goatee by uh, Jim Cousins and Barry Posner. I think it's like 30 years old. And the ideas behind this are just priceless. There are five practices of leadership, model the way, inspire shared vision, challenge the process, enable others to act, and encourage the heart. And it just reinforces for me that leadership is tried and true, but the way we express it and apply it to our world and our context today is so contextual. And technology has fundamentally changed the way that we approach these five basic tenets. I know both Jim and Barry, I see them regularly and we talk about like, how is leadership changing? How are we having to show up differently? How do you model the way in a digital space when you can't see everybody? But so the principles still apply, but how we actually put them into practice is very different today. And I find that leaders are communicating and leading as if we were 20 years ago. We fundamentally haven't changed leadership. So I'm very passionate about leaders really updating their arsenal of tools. You know, we do this in our personal lives. We develop relationships through all of these digital and social tools. And then we come to work and pretend they don't exist. (laughs) We don't know how to apply them in a leadership context. So if leadership is all about relationships and relationships are formed through communications, we need to be communicating as leaders in a much more modern way. Oh, that's fantastic. So we've got one website already for you, quantum hyphen, hyphen or dash, or is the same thing? I think it's the same thing. It's the one next to zero. (laughs) Okay. Quantum dash slash hyphen uh, networks.com. Is there another site that people can go to as well? Or is that the main one? That's the main one for um, the disruption uh, network. But you can always come to my site, charlinglee.com to see my latest. And you can follow me on pretty much every single social media channel with my name, Charling Lee. 
Fantastic. You were so awesome to have on the show. I'm so grateful for your work and for the interview and for sharing your wisdom and your experience and, and for giving me, actually, well, this is a selfish thing now, so for giving me a total boost and lift in terms of thinking about my future customer and galvanizing a manifesto for that. So watch this space. Thank you so much, Charlene. Thank you. Holy cow, there was some good stuff in that interview. I think two big takeaways for me. One is to go ahead and write my manifesto. So I'll be getting off this recording and this podcast and going off to do that right now and have that in place. So stay tuned for that. I think the other big piece is to obsess about your future customer. I think that was sort of like the big takeaway for me as well. So I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. In the meantime, live well, lead well.